Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Day Beautiful podcast feed. My name is Adam. I am the founder of Day Beautiful, the website and podcast where you can discover debut authors. If you like what you hear here, check out Day Beautiful on daybeautiful.net and on all social media at Day Beautiful. And welcome to yet another First Taste reading series where I invite an author to read five minutes from their work to kickstart your week off with great literature and put you in a really good mood. Today's guest is a contributing writer at the New York Times Magazine. In 2020, she was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for feature writing for Fearing for His Life, a profile of Ramsey Orta, the man who filmed the killing of Eric Garner. She was also the recipient of the 2020 Whiting Creative Nonfiction Grant and the 2021 Howard Foundation Grant from Brown University. Her debut memoir, Easy Beauty, came out last year and has been on my mind ever since. I am so excited to welcome Chloe Cooper-Jones. Hey, Chloe. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. How are you? I'm doing very excited. I'm, I'm finally excited to talk to you. Your uh, memoir, Easy Beauty, came out you know, last year and the paperback is out now. Um, how has the year been for you Like since releasing the book and everything that comes after your debut? memoir i think the year's been really amazing um i feel pretty good i mean i i was really committed to um making a clear distinction in my mind between what i could and could not control and only focusing on what i could control and letting everything else go so i think once the book was out of my hands um i kind of released any external um or any sort of pressure on myself about external response so mm-hmm. the fact that the you know response has been very kind um and positive has felt like yeah just just a lucky surprise and mm-hmm. a gift and you know more than more than I could have asked for so yes I feel pretty happy well that's awesome and for people who may not have discovered your book in the past year or so what is um your memoir about it's about recognizing in a moment that something, um, specifically a coping mechanism of mine, uh, a desire to sort of retreat from the world into a separated mental space, which I call the neutral room, um, that that coping mechanism, that sort of protective impulse can also in certain circumstances um, be a tool of a complicity, a a thing that makes me absent from my lived life uh, with my family. So it is, you know, most simply a book about wanting to figure out how I can change that habit. Mm -hmm. And I do that by um, leaving my family and traveling the world by myself and, and thinking about beauty and about Iris Murdoch's idea that um, the contemplation or experience of beauty can change our consciousness for the better. And then returning home, hopefully with um, you know, some lessons, well-earned lessons and mm-hmm. yeah. So awesome. Yeah. I mean, I, it was, it, it taught me a lot. It opened my mind to a lot of different ways of thinking about how I see a lot of things. Um, but yeah, I won't talk too much about it cause I'll talk after you read, but what section of the book will you be reading for us today? So I'm just going to read from the sort of dead center middle of it. Um, just a short passage. Um, I kind of like this passage because one, it feels in and of itself sort of just 
like a little prose poem almost. And so um, just in terms of my style as a writer, I think it's a nice little passage, but then um, it's right in the middle of me sort of figuring out that leaving, constantly sort of being absent and leaving New York where I live and where my family is, um, is both really detrimental to my family, but also really necessary. So it's kind of in the middle of me um, having this, I don't know, I'm, like, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of at my worst. So I think in a way it's a great moment to read because then maybe the listeners will be like, does she figure it out? We'll buy the book and find out. Definitely. Uh, <laughs> so- we'll take it away. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Days pass all the same. Trash in cans steam in August's humid heat. Petals from rotting blossoms fall from branches, and the wind sends them skittering like beetles across the avenues. September brings a sudden chill that strips the leaves. I always mess this line up. September brings a sudden chill that strips the trees of their leaves. October's easy skies turn orange with smoke from Canadian wildfires. The last of the leaves die, desiccate on the stem. New York City is loud, stays loud. A bar opens below our apartment and other people's drunken conversations filter through our bedroom window, distort and invade my dreams. I spent my weekdays at school. Teaching goes well. I'm happy and focused in the classroom when I'm with my students. But when I later sit in my office alone, In grade papers, I lose all my concentration. I'm too anxious. Every line I try to read appears out of focus just slightly. I'm not quite awake, it seems. There's a buzzing in my ears. I'm outside of my body. My awareness functions like a spotlight, selecting a tiny circle of reality. One day early in November, I open my office window and look out at Harlem below. A pigeon shits on the pavement, The air is thick and hits me like a wet rag. Truck wheels scream. I close the window. I find coiled strands of my hair on my office floor. My hair is falling out. My mind drifts out of the window until a knock on my door startles me back into my body. It's the dean of my school. I'm in trouble. I've lost time and missed the faculty meeting. At night in bed, I hold my phone close enough to kiss it and pull up pictures of faraway places, mountain ranges, waterfalls, railways into cities, streams, beaches. The world reaches for me through the screen. I can't sleep. I'd left Italy hopeful, so hopeful, but I return to Brooklyn still myself. Knowing I need to change doesn't make it happen. I'd intended to bring home the happiness I'd felt but I can't hold on to it. I stare above me until I disappear into the black swirling ceiling. The sun rises. It is morning again. Wolfgang scrapes his spoon across the bottom of his breakfast bowl, a shovel on the head of a drum. The smell of yogurt, the sour stink of saliva, tattered light blunted by buildings, buzzsaws buzzing, screams from the street. Feet stomp on metal grates and concrete. Elsewhere, a door exhausts its hinges. Andrew coughs, then sneezes, all explosions. They startle and oppose me. I can't read or write. 
I can't find a place of rest. Day drones. I resume the performance of normalcy. I cook. I teach my classes. I attempt timely email responses. I hold my son and read him to sleep. I kiss my husband. I see my friends. I eat at restaurants. I go to readings. I go to museums. I move convincingly through my very good life. But in the dark, while my family sleeps, I click on images of temples, jungles, deserts, lakes, and rivers, always far away, as far away as possible. That's the short. Yeah, thanks so much for reading. Uh, I know you've probably talked a lot about the questions I'm about to ask over the past year, but this is just in case people haven't heard you speak yet. Um, what was what was the reason, like what started the process of writing this memoir? Like, why did you want to finally write this? Um, well, I didn't think I would write it for anybody but myself. It hmm. started as a really personal project. I was, it was an incident, the sort of, you know, called action of the quest of this book um, is an incident in a bar with two of my friends who are both philosophers. And, um, and I was doing my philosophy PhD at the time. And they were talking about a bioethics case. And one of them made an argument um, that simply is a you know eugenicist argument that disabled lives are inherently inferior to non-disabled lives and um, and therefore less worth living, and that all mothers should be tested for any sort of um, you know any sort of disabilities with their you know when they have when they're pregnant, and that um, if a disability is found, that a fetus should be aborted immediately. And I have a physical disability and this was said to me and um, and it wasn't that that was a unique or surprising um, argument. I mean, that's the basis of eugenics, which has a very long history in this country and, and several others. And I've certainly heard this argument all my life that there's something that dramatically lowers the quality of my life just because I have a disability. So it wasn't the statement that was um, unique or sort of, or that wasn't the call to action. The call to action was that I recognized for the first time, I had this sort of moment of awareness that I, well, as he was saying this incredibly dehumanizing um, set of statements to me, I found myself retracted in what I call the neutral room, which is just this sort of, you know, it's a, a way of dissociating from both physical and emotional or social pain and I just sort of stayed in that that retracted space, just waiting for the moment to pass so then I could just like have a beer with my friends. Um, and it struck me in that moment for the first time that that habit of mine was equal to complicity. And if I didn't figure out a way to speak to people who held these horrible beliefs, um, that that was condoning it. Um, and that that was condoning a reductive belief about the, own, the value of my life, but also the value of any disabled person's life. And it suddenly struck me as an unconscionable thing to do, to stay silent. And so this book started as a personal, just writing and for myself, trying to think through as I was traveling, um, why I had spent so much of my life desiring to live at a remove from from my body, um, from a world of others, 
from my family and why in every sort of moment I felt like I was always outside of the present. And that felt, yeah, that just felt very personal. I didn't, I didn't feel like sharing that with anybody, but it felt very urgent to change this about myself. And then I wrote a piece of, of it uh, for the believer and that essay came out and I got a lot of emails from people with disabilities, not disability, you know, just that connected to that struggle of, of how to, how to sort of navigate that intersection of your interiority and your exteriority and how you're seen and how you see others. And I thought maybe, you know, after that response, I felt like maybe there was something I could say that would transcend my very personal struggle and be relevant to somebody outside of myself, which I think is, you know, the only ethical reason to write a book. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I tried, tried to do, but it, it was a long process to go from conceptualizing this as something just for me to something that um I could then yes spend a year talking about to people so yeah I'm always fascinated with like memoirs in general specifically about like and you kind of touched on this already but just like allowing yourself to write like these intimacies that strangers will read and will perceive differently um, and I'm just curious of like how conscious you were of holding back maybe and having to break through or how easy it was just to put it all out there. Well, I think that the best, well, literature in general, but definitely the best memoir and nonfiction is not about telling people a story. It's about having a point. Um, it's actually about having you know, it's, I don't think my story matters at all. Like, I don't think Mm. my backstory, my parents or my family, like, I don't think that matters to anyone outside of my, um, myself and the people that love me. But I do think, and I don't really think anybody's story matters um, in and of itself. Mm -hmm. I think that when we figure out how our experiences and our insights lend themselves to the ability to illuminate a little corner of the human experience, that's when I think it transcends these, you know, these sort of diary personal entries and becomes literature, right? Um, that is meant to be generous to a world of others. So I think that it wasn't difficult to, to excavate some of these really painful moments of my life because I was really focused on what my point was. And my point was that um, one thing that is often really written onto a disabled body is that um, we're somehow slightly less than whole, that we are broken, that we're damaged, to be that we are to be pitied. Narratives about disabled lives are often narratives that um, present disabled people as having no agency or very little agency as being tools of inspiration for able-bodied people, being sexless, desireless, and then often tragic. Um, You know, a lot of stories about disabled lives, people just die at the end to help able-bodied people learn the value of their own lives um, or to make us cry or something. And I think that if those are the narratives that we are shown over and over and over again, and I include myself, you know, I'm shown these narratives too, then we internalize, I internalize, everyone internalizes um, a story about disability as inherently tragic and lesser. And so my very explicit point in this 
book was to tell the story of a very full life. And a very full human life includes moments that are painful, moments in which a person is deeply flawed and makes um, hurtful mistakes, uh, a person who is struggling, a person who loves very deeply and wants things very deeply and desires things deeply. And so I thought, you know, if every sentence is about in a way leading to an argument about wholeness, then that's a point that transcends me and my life and is an argument about how we can think about disabled lives in general. Because the argument that begins it, that my life is inherently less worth living, I kind of feel like if you spend 300 pages reading about my life, it'd be very hard to believe that argument mm -hmm. at the end. Not because my life is is better than anything, but because it's realer. It's real. It's just mm -hmm. real. And and why would we deny the value of of a real and full life? So that that was just my guide. And I think that guide is, you know, obviously it's out outside of myself. It's it's a it's an aim that's outside of myself. So with that in mind, um, I don't know, that gave me. I guess it just gave me my um, my marching order, so to speak. I had my directive. I just had to follow that directive. Yeah, yeah. If that makes sense. Anyway. No, it definitely <laughs> does. Um, and then I want to ask this kind of shifting ideas completely. I usually talk to writers before their first book is out. A lot of stress, but your book has been out yeah. for a year. So I'm just I'm, and we and you mentioned like oh great feedback and everything. I, I guess like. Like, what has the experience been like? I mean, the book is released, all the nerves, the nervousness, the the what the the emotional rush happens. What is like the next two months like for you, for a writer who finally has a book out? For me, it was great. I think the the worst part of the process was right before the book came out because yeah. you're being perceived. <laughs> like yeah. That's a that's a hard thing. I mean, we write alone in our little rooms and our brains mm -hmm. and. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's sort of this lonely process. And then all of a sudden you're being perceived and that, that was very jarring and, um, uncomfortable for me. Uh, but then once I got through that, you know, once I crossed that threshold and the book was out, I was like, well, I had this moment. I was very, very, very anxious. Oh, there's New York. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was very anxious and then I did this interview um, right before my book came out and it was very clear. This was totally fine. I, I'm not offended by this at all. Like people's lives are so busy, but it was just very clear that the person hadn't read my book. And, and, and it was just so funny to me, you know, it was just like, it was really a terrible interview and, and, mm. and, and it just, but it made me laugh so hard and it gave me this freedom of in this moment of like a lot of anticipation and stress and worry to just go like, um, yeah, most of the people in the world are actually never going to ever hear about this. Yeah. Like the vast majority of people you meet don't care at all. Um, so if you don't figure out how to enjoy this moment, that's just on you. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> like yeah. this, you have to just, you know, I really, it was such a powerful release to feel like, um, yeah, like I could laugh at, at this whole process and just be like, this is on me to enjoy it. But then so that gave me sort of permission. It allowed me to give myself permission to just feel like the joy of, of, you know, trying to be proud of myself um, for just the accomplishment and whatever the response was like, nothing could take away the fact that I'd, I'd worked hard and, and done my best. And 
Um, but then I think after, uh, it was just a joy because I got to really switch to thinking about how I could support other writers that had books out around the same time. I could mm -hmm. really think about just being as generous as possible with my time. And, and one of my great friends um, who I know has been on your podcast, she was just such a good model for this. And that's Jasmine Chan. Mm -hmm. And her book came out a couple months before mine. And I just saw how she used her tour as an opportunity to really speak specifically about other books she loved and other writers she mm -hmm. admired. I thought that's the way to do it, man. It, you know, there's so much you can spiral out about. Um, but like, that's, that's for, get rid of that. It's for the birds. Like, like if you just have this opportunity to talk and be a part of a literary community, like that's a gift. So I really took a, a lot of lessons from her and tried my best to emulate what I thought was um, her incredibly gracious and brilliant model of spending, you know, her year yeah. putting her book out. Yeah. I, I find, I mean, she is amazing. And, and like, I've seen you on Twitter and on social media really being a champion for other writers as well. And I think that's like, that's something that the writing community, and I think they do know it. A lot of people know it, but I think it's, it's, a lot maybe some people think it's like a competition still but it's like really yeah. one book sold if if if, if, a, if they, they can get, have a friend's book sell as well like that's ideal like you know um anyway i just i i think as americans we were taught everything's a competition and really it's like we're all just in like the worst situation possible and like <laughs> it translates yeah, to I the book world as well kind of you know <laughs> I think there's room for everybody. I think yeah. it's so, yeah, I don't. And I th think it's also just a poison to compare yourself to mm -hmm. other people. And, um, and I, I'd rather, I'd rather not publish a book ever, um, than do it and feel miserable the whole time. <laughs> like, but you know, the thing I think also that was really influential to me is I, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Kansas and, um, on a farm and sort of a small farming community. And, there's sort of a Midwestern, I don't know, it's part of our sort of culture of like, it feels embarrassing to ask people for things. It feels kind of embarrassing to, you know, you don't brag, you don't talk about your accomplishments. So sometimes when I would um, tweet something that happened that was good for me or put something on Instagram that was good news, I would just feel this like immediate shame <laughs> I'd be like oh god or if I had to ask you know if I had to go to somebody and be like can you do this event for me or will you you know help me with this I would just feel so much shame and I was talking to my mother about it and I was saying you know I think this is just the midwestern and in, in me feeling all shame about asking for people for things and she said you're getting you're you're un, you're misunderstanding your own home um she said the midwest like what we do is we raise each other's barns which she means like, that's how like farming communities, like barns are literally right. You get all your neighbors together and you, you, you know, make a big pile of food for everybody and they physically help each other yeah. put up barns. Um, and what she meant, of course, was like, you, you can ask people for things if you're always going to be there, be their neighbor, ready mm -hmm. to raise their barn as well. So it's not shameful to be like, I need help raising my barn. I put this book out. Can people, can people rally around me and be 
proud of me. It's only shameful if you're not willing to do that joyfully and authentically for other people's books that you love and that you're so excited are in the world. So that was really helpful. That was like such a, a good reframing um, for me. And, and it is something I take just a tremendous yeah amount of joy and there's so many good books coming out and you're doing such an amazing job just like what a gift to especially focus on on debut writers who are uh figuring it all out you know Thank you so much to Chloe for joining the Debutiful Podcast First Taste Reading Series. You can get her debut memoir out in paperback now. It is called Easy Beauty. You can find her on the internet at ChloeCooperJones.com, on Twitter at CCooperJones, and on Instagram at ChloeCooperJones. You can find Debutiful on the internet at Debutiful.net, and on all social media at Debutiful. As always, I'm Adam. This is Debutiful. And you're all beautiful. <laughs>